0: There to go. Ready to rock and roll? All Good right. Rating. Well, for those of you uh, who maybe this is your first time or maybe it's your first time in a long time, I just mentioned a minute ago that we're in the midst of a series called You Asked for It. And basically, what we've done is we've asked you to turn in questions that you've had, maybe about uh, the world or maybe about life, about God, about the Bible. And then Pastor Robbie is going to turn our attention to God's Word to answer those. And so, uh, now, just so you, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, uh, the last two times we've done this, there just seemed to be this one topic that we just can't seem <laughs> to get to, and so it just seems to be back, it just, it just can't happen. I don't know why, but today, uh, what, rather than do that again, we decided we're going to tackle that first, so we're going to answer that question and uh, really dive into that. So you ready to go, Robbie?
1: Yeah, we're not going to give it 100 million years before we talk about evolution. So, <laughs> Well, yeah,
0: that's, that's what good. we're talking about, Robbie. We're going to start with the topic of the age of the <laughs> earth and evolution, and so someone asks... How old is the earth?
1: All right. Well, I think um, as, we, as we look at God's word, uh, a lot of Bible teachers have an opinion about uh, what that probably is. I, first of all, I kind of want to say, I mean, I don't want to overemphasize this, but I'm not sure that it's super important in the sense that we've got to figure out how the, the dirt is that we're standing on. But I think it is important in terms of what we're going to be talking about here in just a moment. So most Bible teachers would say, based on the genealogies in the Old Testament, just kind of extrapolating that out, looking at maybe, um, you know, what that would, how long that would take to develop, maybe 6, 10, 12,000 years, I think is what most Bible teachers would say. Okay.
0: Okay. Well, let's, here's the next question. What about the evidence then of evolution that says that all of this has been a process of millions of years?
1: Yeah, well, I would say, well, what about the evidence of evolution? Um, I I think many of us have, well, let me just put it this way. I believe in about a hundred years, we're going to look back and say, seriously, seriously, we believe that we were duped into believing all of that. And certainly when we get to heaven, uh, we're going to see that, uh, the truth of what God has done and what he reveals in his word. I want to start by first of all saying this for those of you that maybe bow up to that. Well, Well, what about science? You know, are you guys just people that deny science or don't care about those kind of things? Well, let me say, first of all, many times when people are talking about evolution, realize what you're defending. Many times when people are talking about evolution, they're talking specifically about naturalistic evolution. And what does that mean? That means that there is no God and that we came about through some process that has happened that we call evolution. So I want to kind of start with that. The Bible says very clearly, and think about this, how important is this topic? The Bible starts with this statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, He started His letter with that. Wow, isn't that incredible? So it is important. It does matter. And obviously, we cannot buy into naturalistic evolution. The Bible teaches we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. Amen? Amen. Now, I know some of you out there are saying, oh, but Pastor Robbie, haven't you ever heard of theistic evolution? And what many Christians have done is they've tried to say, hey, we know that science says it took millions of years. We want to kind of bail God out. We believe in the Lord. We believe in, you know, he's the one who created everything. So couldn't we say that, yes, God created everything, but he created it through the mechanism of evolution. Now, some of you right now initially like, oh, I've never thought of that. That's a really good kind of, you know, marrying of what we learn in school, uh, in science, and what we know in God's Word. But I need to share with you that theistic evolution, maybe on the surface, is very appealing for those reasons, but it actually doesn't work. You see, when you begin to study the Bible, you see that the Bible says... or, or Evolution requires death. It requires lots of death. But the Bible says that death did not come until man was here. You follow that? So evolution says there is this long chain of, of um, transitions that, were, uh, that experienced deaths and ultimately that ended up in human beings. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that death did not come until human beings were here. So you cannot have evolution as a mechanism that God used to bring this all about because it required death. That if you believe God's word, now you don't have to, but if you believe God's word, the Bible says, through one man, Romans 5 verse 12, through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. We see that portrayed in Genesis uh, chapter three, but Romans five twelve makes it very clear: death came about because Adam and Eve chose to, to disobey God, and so he, it could not be the mechanism of evolution that God worked through. So, with that in mind, I want to read a couple other scriptures before we sort of walk through a little bit of the assumptions that come with evolution. The Bible says in First John chapter four verses one and two, beloved, that's you if you're a believer. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. How can you recognize God? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, I read that verse to say, before we look at some of the assumptions of evolution, we need to understand God's word tells us to do what? To be discerning, right? God's Word tells us to be thoughtful, to be prayerful, to be asking God to teach us truth. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, Paul prayed this for believers. Okay, so we're, we're going to enter into some of the discussion about evolution. But this is what Paul prayed for believers. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve things that are excellent. So that you may discern or understand what is most important. Okay, so the Bible says God wants us to know truth. Amen? God is not afraid of the truth. So let's talk about some of the assumptions of evolution. First of all, in order to have evolution, you have to have millions of years of transitional life forms. Right? Millions of years of life, death, mutations growing into something else. Wouldn't you think, if we're just looking at evidence, wouldn't you think that we would have more evidence of the transitional forms than the actual end of the line forms? Do you follow what I'm saying? If there was a lot of experimenting to get to me, then you should see a lot of experiments and then one me. Right? Right? But we have never conclusively whatsoever found a transitional life form. In fact, Charles Darwin said that was a problem. He said a problem with his idea was you need those, you need many, many life forms. And he recognized that we did not have them, but here's what he said. It's too early in archaeology, but we know they're going to show up. And now all this time later, wouldn't you think we would have stumbled upon a few hundred, a few thousand, a few million transitional life forms? There are no transitional life forms that we have found. Let's talk about those mutations. Mutations. So things go from this to that. Well, that sounds good in theory, right? Something over time could maybe develop an appendage And that appendage got passed on, and then it got a little bigger, and then it got a little bigger, and then it got a little bigger. Well, that sounds good at everything, but in real life, when frogs have five legs, they don't become better frogs. They certainly don't become cows. What do they do? They walk slow and they get eaten. Mutations in real life are generally, if not exclusively, I don't want to overspeak, but are generally a negative thing. When something grows something that was not designed to have, it doesn't work right, and it dies. It doesn't get better. Has anybody ever heard of the term uniformitarianism? All right, that's a big word. I want you young people to write that down, because you're maybe going to hear that. Uniformitarianism. That is the assumption that everything that we see today... Now listen, everything that we see today is operating just as it always has. That's a big assumption, isn't it? My family and I went to House Caverns. Anybody ever been there? When the kids were little, we went to House Caverns. It's awesome. It's, it's an amazing experience. Underground, you know, cave, you know, uh, stream. Well, I, I wasn't going there to disprove evolution. I was going there to have fun with my family. out of my t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops. And I was just having fun. So the guy says, hey, here's how this cavern got, you know, shaped. And uh, okay, whatever. So water and this and that. And okay, so I'm just, I'm just enjoying myself. All right. And a couple of times we think throughout history, there's been big floods that came through and cut it out and carved it out even more. Okay, cool, whatever, you know. So then we come to this big calcium deposit. It almost looked like Jabba the Hut. Okay. There was this massive calcium deposit, and right about I saw it. There was a little drip, 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 drip. You said, "How long is it going to keep going?" Right, Isaac? Drip. The guy said, "We know that that calcium deposit has been there, however many million years." And so I didn't want to make a big deal or whatever, but but I just asked him. I just went, before we kept going, I just called him off to the side. I said. I said, do we know that that calcium deposit has been there? I said, oh, yes, we know. I said, how do you know that? I knew how he figured that out because I can figure out how ra- well, the rate of that drip, right? If that drip kept dripping for umpteen million years, there'd be this big job of the hut after umpteen million years. If that drip was dripping like that for umpteen million years. I said to him, I get it. If that drip was dripping like that for umpteen million years, we'd have job of the hut. And it, it would appear to be whatever a million years old. I said, but didn't you say there's been some major floods cut through the cavern at least a couple times? He said, yeah. I said, do you think when that came through it changed and maybe the drip went drip, 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 drip? Or maybe the drip went drip. Drip. I said, is it possible that that drip has, ne- has not always been exactly the rate it is. He said, no, it's not possible. I said, I said, I'm not saying it hasn't been. I'm not saying I'm right and you're wrong. I'm just saying, is it possible that it's dripped differently? No, it's not possible. I said, is it possible that that calcium deposit has always been there and the drip came later? And, and, and so the, the job of the hut was half its size, and the drip's only been dripping for a, a shorter amount. No, that's not possible. I said, I'm not saying that happened. I'm saying, is that no, that's not possible. So a major assumption is that what we're looking at right now is the way it's always been, and so therefore we can deduce all these things that are asserted. The last thing I want to share is geological layers. First of all, How do we explain these geological layers and the evidence that it shows? And there is evidence in the geological layers. Well, first of all, you need to understand this. There was a major flood. There was a cataclysmic flood over the face of the whole earth. And if you read the book of Genesis, I think I shared this maybe last time, it appears that they were in that ark for over a year. That is a lot of water moving around and pressing on things and changing things, right? So first of all, there's a major flood that we have to consider. The last thing that I want want you to consider is this. Now think about this. On the day that Adam and Eve were created, how old were they? On the day that Adam and Eve were created, how old were they? One day old. <laughs> but how old did they appear? We don't know exactly. Let's say 16, 18, 21, right? So if a scientist had showed up on the day of creation, aha, there's a 30 plus year old man. He's been here for 30 plus years. But God had created Adam and Eve that day. Have you ever considered that what we're observing was created in one swoop? And we're looking at stuff that, yes, if it dripped. If there was a drip to make West Mountain, that's a long drip. But if God created it in one day, it's one day old. Does that make sense? It's called a mature earth. The earth was already mature when it was created. It gives the appearance of being millions of years old, but it was one day old on that day. Wow. Okay, well, I hope
0: that helps. Um, I know that that is super helpful for people maybe that are struggling with feeling like they've just been bombarded by culture that seems to just continue to challenge their beliefs about God. But mm. man, it's good to know that God's Word has answers. Amen. Amen. Well, let's move on to our next topic. Wait a and, second, Jeff. Okay, they're a little sure. bit light
1: on their amens tonight. All right. Ooh, ooh, we all are right. highly Wake evolved beings. We can say amen a lot. Amen. <laughs> amen. Amen. All Well, right. We're <laughs> not lower level life forms, right, of Christians, right? We're highly evolved. We can say amen. All right. They're with us Well, now,
0: now that we've got that established, let's move on now to our, uh, to our next one. Decision making and God's will. All right. So someone's asked, how do you know when to press through a Problem, or when to take that as an indication that God wants you to maybe change direction. Here's some examples: If I have cancer, do I do chemo, do Mm -hmm. I fight the cancer, and do I trust God to heal me, or do I go home, do I enjoy my my remaining days with my family? What if my job is extremely hard? Do I stick it out and do I trust God to honor my perseverance, or do I accept it's not going to change and find another job?
1: Actually, as we were preparing for this series, I had several people ask me on some different level this question. So, did you understand that? How do we know whether we're supposed to press through something or whether we're supposed to change gears? That's a very real question, isn't it? First of all, I want us to realize that every situation is unique. You could actually see two people in what appears to be the same situation that need to make different decisions. Sometimes people say, I feel, I sense that God has called me to press through with this, and so that's what I'm going to do. Sometimes people say, no, I need to let go and realize that I'm pushing something that God's saying no to, right? Okay, so I want to make sure we're clear on that. We're in a relationship. We're not in a formula. Amen? All right, so with that in mind, this one is a little bit harder. This one is a little bit more elusive because... There's as many different situations in this room as there are people. And so we can't just say this or that. But I want to give you some things that you can sort of take home. How do I know? How do I know what God wants me to do, right? First of all, we pray. Now, I don't say that lightly. Friends, I've shared with you, your pastors, your church family, we're learning God answers prayer. If that, if that statement sounds kind of cheap or easy to you, I, I want to be gentle in saying this, but have you been praying? Because when you pray, God answers your prayers. Anybody back me up? Amen. When we ask God to help us, God does give us real answers. Okay, the second thing is be in His Word. The Bible says your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. And I like the image of that. Have you ever thought about that? Your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. That means as I open God's word, he gives me enough for the next step. He doesn't give me 35 steps. He gives me the next step. Now, what's the cool thing about that? If I have a lamp in my hands and I take a step, what happens to the lamp? It goes forward, doesn't it? So when I take this step, God will shine the light on the next one. Amen. Friends, again, if you don't understand that, if that seems strange to you, I want to challenge you. Have you ever come to God's word sincerely seeking him with all your heart, believing by faith that he's going to show you his answers in his word? Because there are many people in this room who have learned and who are continuing to discover God speaks to us, doesn't he? God speaks to us through prayer. We're going to learn in just a minute the ways that he does that through his word. And then I would say, seek wise counsel. Guys, listen. This is the reason we have multiple pastors. This is the reason why we have ministry leaders. This is is the reason why we have a body of Christ. God doesn't just speak through me. God doesn't just speak through Pastor Jeff. God speaks through his body. I listen to the Lord through his body. As you guys share things, as you guys make comments, as you guys serve the Lord, as you share your heart or what God's saying to you, as you do that, my antennae are always up, amen? And I'm saying, God, what are you trying to say to me? Now, listen, there's some caution with that. There are some Christians who completely submit themselves to that. And you've got to watch it because there are other Christians who really like to give you God's direction for your life. So we can be very helpful to each other, but I don't necessarily have to do what someone else recommends I need to do. Is what I'm saying, okay? So what am I doing? I'm listening, Lord, Amen. I'm listening. Would you speak to me? And God speaks through other people. So what I'm going to say is thanks for your thoughts. Lord, what are you saying to me? Amen. I'm reading your word. I'm trying to listen for your voice. I'm listening for your voice through your people. What are you trying to say to me? Now, if there's no clear answer in your estimation by that point, you need to wait. Okay? The pastors can tell you, if you spend much time with me in ministry and life situations, I drag my feet often. Not because I'm slow. I'm ready. Let's go. I'm ready. Let's go. But if I don't know what God wants me to do, Robbie drags his feet. Oh, I don't want to make something happen. Amen? If you haven't learned that, you're going to learn it. Go back to Genesis 16. Abraham and Hagar... Abraham tried to make something happen because he waited about, what was it, 11 years? And God didn't seem to answer and he tried to make something happen. So wait, and then somebody's arguing with me, Jeff. They're saying, I can't wait. I got to make a decision tomorrow, right? That's tough, isn't it? I get real nervous when I have to make a decision. First of all, I would ask, do you have to? Can you stall? If you can't stall, seek the Lord But if you have to make a decision, have confidence that 1 Corinthians 2 verse 16 says, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Now, let me share something with you. I don't know if I ever get to that point. I have confidence that if I'm making a decision and I'm walking with the Lord and I'm seeking Him, that I'll make a good decision and hopefully the right decision, God's will, because I have the mind of Christ. So ultimately, if I don't know, but I need to make a decision... I'm going to say, Lord, help me. I think this is right. Please help me. But I'm going to be honest with you. I hardly ever get to that point. I don't know that we always have to answer. We get fidgety. But I would wait as long as I can until you get clarity. And then when you get clarity, then move forward.
0: Okay, great. So, uh, so the next one is kind of a follow-up to that question. Someone asked about... Really hearing from God. So we talk a lot about that here at New Hope. And and many people wonder, what does that mean? How can a peace person know that they're hearing from God?
1: Mm. Yeah, I know all of us. This is is a very common question we get. Because we talk about this a lot. I'll be honest with you. It really breaks my heart that churches don't talk about that more. Uh, We just went through a series on God's Holy Spirit. I don't know why Christians are so afraid to follow the leadership of God's Spirit. I'll tell you why, because the enemy doesn't want us to. I mean, Christians are just so nervous about it. We're going to go crazy. We're going to get off track. When does that ever happen? I mean, I'm sure it's happened, but, but we're so afraid of that where we're not doing what God tells us to do, which is to be led by His Spirit. This ought to be a more normal part of our Christian walk, Okay. How do we hear from God? Four primary ways. Write these down. First of all, is through His Word. That is the best source for you to know that God has spoken to you. It is the most objective. It says what it says. It means what it means. That's what God's saying to me. Okay? The second way is by His Spirit in prayer. Again, you sort of hear some of the things we were just talking about, right? We listen to the Lord as we get to know Him better. Now, that's a little bit elusive. But as you walk with God, you will recognize His voice more clearly. Especially as you get to know His Word better, right? I often am not sure what God is saying, but I'm pretty sure what He's not saying. Amen? I know it's not that. I know People come to me and say, you know, like young people come and say, oh, I've got so many decisions about God's direction for my life. I don't know if it's this, I don't know if it's that, I don't know if it's this. And they named like eight things. I say, hey, let me stop you. Can I at least identify for you, you have an orbit of eight things. It's not 10 million. You just haven't acknowledged that there's eight things that I'm not saying. You just said eight things that I'm not saying for my life. So obviously God's got you in the ballpark, right? And the more that we get to know the Lord, the more that we'll be able to identify the general sense. And I think more and more hear his voice speaking to us. The third way is people, especially his people. The most reliable source is God speaking through his body. The final one is circumstances. Now, the reliability of those is in that order. His word, his spirit, his spirit's reliable, but I don't always know what's his spirit, right? I can read the Bible and see what it says. So his word, his spirit, his people, the least reliable source of God speaking is the one that most of us use most often a sign an indicator does God speak through circumstances absolutely but I find that the the most reliable way to use circumstances is as affirmation not as primary direction now if you're brand new to being a Christian you probably got here by circumstances people because you're not in the word Maybe you don't have the Lord in your heart yet as your Savior. You're not around other Christians where you can hear the voice of the Lord. So many people often say, I kept seeing that sign out front. I kept seeing all those cars. I kept meeting people at my work that said, I go to New Hope. You want to come join me? God uses circumstances. Amen. Amen. But that is not the most reliable way to seek the Lord. Those other sources would be the most reliable.
0: Okay, well, I know that that's there's a lot more that we could actually say about that conversation, Mm. especially um, how to hear and be led by God. Uh, But I'm sure that's helpful to many as they're seeking to learn that. I hope so. Well, let's change gears quite a bit now, and let's talk about the topic of alcohol. Mm. Is it okay for Christians to drink alcohol?
1: I'm just going to be straight with you. I don't believe that alcohol has any place in the life of a believer. If you've got a boo-boo, sure, you can use alcohol. That's a joke, all right? (laughs) Let me share with you three primary reasons, okay? First of all, it's dangerous. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? I have a bruise. I don't even know where it came from. Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long over wine, those who go taste mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things, and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea foolish things, and like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know what. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. It's just absurdity. The Bible's saying it drives us to absurdity. Alcohol is dangerous. Secondly, because you need all the wisdom you can get. Why don't you think about it for a second? If the wisdom I needed to make it safely through life was right here, and I have—if we're being generous—right here, I can't afford to subtract any. Amen? I need to grow in wisdom, not give some away. Amen? The Bible says that alcohol is not wise for those who, who influence and lead other people. Proverbs 31, verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. This is probably Solomon. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to drink strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. The Bible says that alcohol is not for leaders. And okay, then President Trump didn't, doesn't need to drink. Or our mayor or our governor, they don't need to drink. Well, somebody said the biggest party is not the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. It's the cocktail party. Plenty of our leaders are drinking alcohol. They're going to have to talk to God about how that's affected their decisions. But let me just say this to you. How many important decisions depend on you? And how much of that can you give away? The last thing is this, you have influence. All right, listen, I, I struggle with this because I don't want to come across as, see, as soon as you say no alcohol, oh, you're one of those, you know, like, of course you're a pastor, and pastors don't really live in real life, and, you know, and listen, if you knew my story, I'm a good old boy, okay? And I grew up like lots of good old boys, Okay? I know what's what, and sometimes I might want to enjoy what's what, and maybe I'd be all right. Maybe I would. I'm not scared. I'm not wimpy. I'm not, you know, walking on clouds in some weird world. Honestly, if for no other reason, this is why I would highly encourage you not to drink alcohol. The Bible says you are influencing other people. Romans 14 verse 21, it is not good to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. 1 Corinthians 8 also talks about this. Even if you believe, and I, would, I wish I could talk more about this because there's much evidence against the case that many believers make. for. I don't know why we're fighting so much for alcohol. I'm going to be honest with you. We're pastors. We talk to a lot of people. Alcohol messes up a lot. It's a common denominator in a lot of stories. And it's just not worth it to me. It's just not worth it. Do I think it's going to kill me to drink a beer? No. If I'm out on my boat and somebody else is driving and I'm just kind of chillaxing and kicking back, would I think it'd be kind of cool? Maybe. But it ain't worth it because my kids are watching me and your kids are watching me and my kids are watching you and other people are watching you. One out of ten people who takes one drink of alcohol will become an alcoholic. I'm not willing to play Russian roulette with other people. My friends, listen, I know pastors when they talk about this, they're all tiptoeing and they're soft. They don't want to make anybody mad. Listen, I get it. I'm a regular person. I know. I understand. I know all the things you would say probably in terms of just uh, innocent, enjoying. I'm not saying you're the worst person in the world. Let's don't judge each other based on this. I'm just saying to you as your pastor... I'm not lifting myself up as the paragon of an example for you. But if you would say that you look to me for some kind of an example, that is part of the configuration of my life. I do not drink alcohol, and I have no good reason to. And I would highly encourage you to stay away from it. Okay, let's talk about
0: one of the areas then that alcohol devastates the most, Mm. the home. Mm. We're talking about divorce and remarriage. Hmm. You know, someone asked, with so many divorces and remarriages in our world today, what does the Bible say about this? Is it ever okay to divorce and to remarry?
1: Yeah, this is the reality of where we live, right? And to be honest with you, friends, I think we're only going to see more and more of this as the days get harder. As this world gets harder, there's an attack on the home. It gets harder to, to work things out, to live together. The enemy's attacking the world is hard. Um, so we're, we're in a tough spot with marriage. And so people have these questions. I want to kind of do what Jesus did first. Um, people ask him these same questions. What is a good reason to get a divorce? And you know what Jesus did? He took them back to the beginning. Before he answered the question, he said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? There again is what we talked about last week, Right? With transgenderism and homosexuality it's very clear. God created men and women to be together in marriage. Unless God calls you to be single, as he does some. But God made them from the beginning, male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined. That word means to be superglued, to be cemented to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two. They are still two individuals. But something new has been birthed that is one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So that sets up the principle that God intends for marriage not to be eternal, but to be permanent. So that means for life. That's God's intention. All right, so we don't need to back away from that, even though we live in a reality where we don't see that lived out as often. But the reality is that it doesn't live out always, right? So what do we do in those situations? I do believe after years of studying God's word and being in ministry, that God does allow two exceptions, two overarching exceptions for there to be divorce and thus remarriage as well. Matthew 19 verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality. So that's sexual immorality. We generally say adultery because in marriage that's called adultery, but God said for any sexual sin and marriage another woman commits adultery. So he says if we divorce and remarry unless it's for sexual sin. So obviously God is saying there that if someone commits adultery that it must be allowable apparently for their spouse to divorce them. Okay? It's not required that they divorce, but apparently it's allowed for a person to in that situation. Now again, it's not required people ask, "Well, is that one time or is that a is that a pattern?" Knowing the heart of God, I would encourage you to lean more towards you know, not being quick that it would be more, you know, a longer-term thing, but I don't want to put more than what God says. Apparently, if your spouse commits adultery even once, God allows an exception for divorce. There's another one in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Generally, this is called desertion. It says, "Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace." So let me just sort of, there's a longer passage there, but let me just sort of wrap, uh, round out what that's saying, or kind of um, paraphrase what that's saying. If your spouse refuses to stay with you, what are you going to do? You can't tie him down, right? Then you'll be separated anyway, because it put you in jail, right? So, so God is saying, if your spouse absolutely will not stay with you, then okay, let them go. You can release them for that. So desertion. Now somebody might say, well, where's abuse in there? Uh, obviously, we'll talk about abuse maybe here in just a moment. But abuse would be, I believe in that category of desertion. They've gotten to the point that they absolutely will not work with you. Does that make sense? Someone is abusive. That means they're showing by their actions that they're not willing to work with you, and so that would seem to be uh, certainly God wants them to be safe for sure. But that would seem to be reason for divorce. Now, as far as remarriage goes, generally I would encourage that you wait until your spouse remarries, because once they remarry, the doors close, right? In fact, Deuteronomy 24, God God kind of says, once they remarry, the door is closed. Um, but what we found is that, okay, what if it's a situation where somebody's spouse leaves them, they're cheating on them indefinitely, they don't have enough morality to marry the second person, and they just stay single the rest of their life, but they're in immorality. So what am I supposed to do? Hope they have a wedding day scheduled soon, right? So... We're not saying that you have to wait till they remarry. That is the ultimate closure of the door. What, what I would say is, you be able to stand before God one day and say, I did the best I could. I did everything I could to reconcile. But for whatever reason, they refused and it was impossible. But don't run with that. Don't say, Pastor, i said, if it can't work it out, don't worry about it. No, God is very serious. He gives some practical understanding about certain situations which are very serious but uh, but don't run with that that it's no big deal that is not at all what God's word says
0: okay well Robbie you did
1: just mention abuse briefly someone did have a question about
0: that if there is abuse involved so I'll give you a chance to answer that more but why don't we add this maybe to it does that include verbal and emotional abuse as qualifying for a reason to divorce
1: okay so let's just talk about abuse in general abuse really let's talk about sexual or physical abuse So sexual or physical abuse, obviously God does not want someone to be in danger. So the very first thing is safety, right? Appeal to the authorities, call the police, whatever needs to happen. God is not wanting anyone to be in that situation. Let's be very clear about that. Overall, God's desire in general, not for that relationship, I'm not saying that one, but we know that overall God's will is, if possible, for us to live peaceably with all men. Romans 12, verse 18. And for reconciliation, restoration. But we just said if that person is not willing, no matter what the situation, but if that person is not willing um, to work towards growth and healing, um, then there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, that would be more of a matter of desertion. They, they refuse to work it out with you. As far as verbal and emotional abuse, now that gets a little bit more difficult. Um. Here's the first thing I would say. And don't misunderstand me. I'm just trying to lift high the standard for you as your pastor, okay? We give up generally way too easy. I'm not talking about physical abuse. I'm not talking about sexual abuse. I'm talking about what somebody says is emotional or verbal abuse. And I'm not making a decision about that. I'm just saying, in general, we give up way too easily, Period. So I would just challenge you to make sure if there's adultery, if there's desertion, which includes abuse, they just won't work it out with you, okay. But just be careful about jumping there. Uh, I would want to be able to say I did everything I could. And not just that our home was kind of challenging, but that it was absolutely unable to be lived in. And so that person was not willing to work it out with me. But again... I would be very, very pleased. Don't run with that. Just because your spouse smarts off to you or maybe has a bad attitude, that doesn't mean, you know, I'm out of here, right? And, and again, I don't say that lightly. I'm just trying to, be, to clarify. There are people who are in very severe circumstances, and in those cases, maybe that is desertion. But I would just be very thoughtful about that.
0: Okay, well, uh, continuing then with the idea of the family, uh, but maybe in a more positive direction. Pastor Robbie, we have so, uh, we've really been so fortunate here to have so many people in our church family who have fostered children or adopted mm. children. Uh, someone asked about this. They said, if God's design is for a family to have a dad and a mom, is it morally okay for me to offer my home for foster care as a single mom? Mm. We're talking about fostering and adoption. Right.
1: Okay, so you hear that? So a single mom is saying, I know God's plan is for there to be generally in families, God designed it for a mother and a father, so am I doing anything wrong by offering my home as a single mom? First thing I want to say is thank you and God bless you. You can never go wrong helping orphans, helping those who don't have a home. Okay? Um, I say never go wrong. I mean, obviously we can interfere in situations we shouldn't interfere in. But I'm talking about in those situations to have a heart to provide a home for those who don't have it. Listen to what the Bible says in James one twenty seven. Uh, James one twenty seven says, let me find James 1.27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The Bible says in Psalm 68, verse 6, that God makes a home for the lonely. So, yes, we would ultimately hope everyone can have a mom and a dad in a home. But, ultimately, God is our mom and dad. To provide a home is a good thing. Amen? Mm-hmm. So, I would just say to that person, absolutely categorically, there's nothing wrong with that. There's everything right about that, and God bless you.
0: Amen. Well, as we said, it's so great to have so much of that happening in our Mm. church family, and we would encourage more of it. Amen.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: All right. Well, here's our final topic for the day. Let's talk about biblical friendship. Uh, What does God's word say about biblical
1: friendship? All right. And I'm going to say just like uh, evolution and uh, the age of the earth, we're going to have to hold off on this one. Oh, okay. I want to dig into that one a little bit more, but uh, someone did ask that question what does it mean to be friends uh, from God's point of view, to have biblical friends? And so I want to dig into that a little bit more. But before we, before we close out, I just want to take a moment and just to ask you to bow your heads with me for just a moment. We've talked about a lot of topics tonight. And we've talked about some very serious topics. And I always just want to be thoughtful that there are people in the room that that asked those questions. Or maybe you didn't ask that question, but you have that same kind of situation in your life. And I want to just take a few moments here before the service closes. We've talked about God's Word and hopefully God's perspective. Hopefully we've represented that accurately. Would you like God speak to you about your life? So what does that mean for me? I've been through divorce. Does God still love me? Absolutely, he does. Absolutely. That's not even a question. I know churches have made you wonder. This life is hard. There's some really hard things. There's some really hurtful things. And God knows if you did your best. God knows your heart. God knows you fought. God knows you prayed. The Lord even knows maybe if you weren't in the best spot during those days. Maybe maybe you were part of the problem in a different situation in this room. Maybe you're the reason your family split up. Maybe you committed adultery. Maybe you were hurtful in a very severe way. God wants to meet you right there. And I would just ask you, have you ever talked to Him about that? Have you ever said, God, I'm sorry for the choices I made. I'm sorry for the impact that that made. Not in a crushing way, not in a... Condemning way, but in just in an honest, humble way, saying, God, please, I'm so sorry. And would you just accept God's healing and forgiveness? Or maybe the beginning of a healing? If you're a believer. If you're not a believer here today, maybe those choices, that impact, that those consequences, that decision those circumstances, maybe God was using all of that to draw you to himself. There are people in this room who probably accepted Christ because of their divorce. Would you praise God for that? That as painful and hurtful as it was, that God used that to draw you to himself? Maybe there's somebody here that God led you here right now in this service So that you could hear that He wants to be your Savior. At least two people, two men last week gave their lives to Christ during the service. Maybe today you would say, dear Jesus, maybe it's not divorce, maybe it's not your family situation, maybe it's something else. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and that my sins have separated me from you. And I ask you to come into my heart and to be my Savior. Please forgive me, God. I want to be your child. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to go to heaven one day. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. God, we thank you for speaking to hearts tonight. Lord, there's some in this room that are struggling with that. How do I hear from God? How How do I know he's speaking? And maybe you're calling them to spend more time in your word. When someone leave here tonight and say, God, I'm going to spend more time reading your word. I'm going to get involved in one of these growth groups because as I read it, I don't understand it. I need other people to help me understand it. Or maybe there's somebody here who knows good and well what you're saying to them. It's clear, God. And they need to respond to that right now. Father, we thank you for bringing us here to speak to us about these things. We thank you that your word has the answers. We are not created from a bunch of pond scum that came because of a bolt of lightning struck some amoeba. Lord, we are here because a personal, real, eternal God loved us, had a purpose for our lives, and created us to know you and to walk with you and to serve you and to share you. And I pray that we would leave here knowing that tonight, Lord. We love you so much. Thank you so much for being real and for being alive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.